would not say that in public. <laughs> uh, hey, everybody. Uh, this is Brandon Powers here coming to you from Comics Paradox, the po- podcast where we talk about alternate reality tales set uh, in the basically two big publishers, DC and Marvel. Uh, we're just looking at alternate takes, skewed takes on characters that we already know and love. Uh, joining me tonight, we have two gentlemen, uh, the first of which is Mr. Leo Pond. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, Leo. How's it going? How's it go- it's going, man. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well, doing well. Excited for tonight's episode. As always, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, way to agree with me. Thanks, Leo. And <laughs> coming up next, we have Justin the Coop Cooper. What's happening, Justin? Oh, just sitting here contemplating my own posture. So... <laughs> We just <laughs> straight <Yeah>. as ever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So uh, tonight we are going to be discussing uh, a tale from Superman number eighteen. Everyone thinks because you're a zombie, you don't know good coffee. Well, they're wrong. We have very active lifestyles. It's not all wandering the countryside aimlessly or scaring passing motorists. We all love a good cup of joe. And there's only one brew that gets my seal of approval. Deadly Grounds Coffee is my guilty pleasure. Bold, robust, delicious. It's coffee that can wake the dead. (laughs) With over a dozen different roasts and flavors, Deadly Grounds can satisfy the most finicky of coffee addicts. The aroma is so intoxicating. It brings all of my neighbors out of the woodwork. Deadly Grounds coffee. Coffee to die for and zombie approved. It's good to get a little deadly. Use the front door! Oh, they're so disgusting. The Dorkening and all affiliated shows are not intended for anyone under the age of 18. The following may contain discussions or scenes that have adult situations, graphic violence, nudity, strong sexual content, and graphic language. This show is intended for mature audiences only. Viewer discretion is advised. Uh, from June 1988, it was uh, written by John Byrne. And they actually had a special guest artist on this issue. Uh, it was uh, a, a guy named Mike Mignola, who uh, anybody that might know a little bit more about their uh, their comic book industry lore, he uh, he actually went on in the future to create the character known as Hellboy uh, through Dark Horse Comics. Uh, Hellboy at this point has had three movies, uh, one of which was a a reboot uh, of of sorts. Uh, the first two having been directed by Guillermo del Toro and starring Ron Perlman and the reboot uh, ha- starring um, David Harbour of uh, Stranger Things and now uh, Black Widow fame. Um, and this this particular issue, uh, it took place right around the same time that the 50th anniversary celebration for Superman was occurring, uh, which is really saying something because we're at, what, 80 something years yeah, now? Yeah, we are. 
Yeah, this, uh, yeah, June 88, we're looking at 50 years. That's insane. Right. This, by the way, is the Hellboy team. So John Byrne, uh, the first the first appearance of Hellboy was in John Byrne's uh, Next Men number 21. So John Byrne wrote and, and drew the whole thing. Then you had Hellboy's first appearance. And I believe Carl Kessel does the inks for most of the uh, Hellboy books, like the, uh, the Seed of Destruction and all that. So this is very much like the progenitor for that. Like with this oh. this sort of team, because Byrne was absolutely instrumental in the creation of Hellboy. Yeah, it, and it's it's I mean it, it's very great to see too because uh, up to this point, especially given John Byrne's creative influence on Superman since uh, the post crisis uh, era, he started with the Man of Steel miniseries. Um, he really set the groundwork for how the character of Superman was approached, both visually and storytelling wise. Uh, and for him to have worked collaboratively with these fellows for quite some time and to hand over the pencils to Mike Mignola, uh, it's really impressive, oh, at least yeah. to me, to see how Mike Mignola really jumps in and, and does this like high concept sci-fi stuff with Superman uh, and of all people, uh, Hawkman and Hawkwoman, uh, as they are in the Hawk ship flying through space. Um, this is, it's very important to note, uh, especially post-crisis. This is when, uh, it was being established that, um, Thanagar was a planet that the Hawks all came from. They were like a police force and it was, it was very sci-fi heavy. Um, still trying to lean into like the nth metals that they were able to utilize for flight. And that's part of what their wings were made of. And later delving into like that's what allowed them to reincarnate that is um carter hall and in, in uh Shayera. uh so. i just want to say real quick uh, my wife uh peeked over as i was reading this and uh she she saw them and i said well it's, it's uh uh hawkman and uh hawk uh hawk woman and uh hawkman and uh she got a chuckle out of it and this is the same woman that when she saw the she hulk commercial she <laughs> hulk Wait, is a girl there, one? Is there a he Hulk? <laughs> <laughs> he man. <laughs> no, when I mean when she said when she said like first of all I have to know was she busting chops when she said that like no 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 <laughs> oh Megan she, she yeah she she didn't know there was a she Hulk and I mean she knew of Hulk but it was like she didn't realize it was both a he Hulk and a she Hulk. I, I just I just love the qualifier He Hulk. I mean, I, th I think that's only fair. If we're gonna call her She Hulk, let's call him He Hulk. God damn it, right? Uh, Hulk. Why not? Hulk answers to him. Uh, he him. <laughs> let's just, wait, listen. We'll just go full on Legend of Billie Jean status. Fair is fair. Fucking She Hulk and He Hulk. Yeah. That's. Thank you, Megan. I'm going to I'm going to say that from now on. I'm excellent uh, Supergirl reference there with the Legend of Billie Jean. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, Pat Benatar, she's she's saying the the uh, title song for for that movie. And uh, what's great is at her concerts, uh, whenever she got ready to introduce that song, she said, "Hey, here's a here's a great song I did from the the worst movie ever made," and then just <laughs> performs it. I personally, I like the Legend of Billie Jean. Um, it does star Helen Slater of, yep. of Supergirl fame, Supergirl the movie. Um, playing her brother in the movie is Christian Slater, who is absolutely no relation to her whatsoever. And you have to understand how fucking confusing that was to me when I was a kid. Like, 
I honestly thought they were brother and sister for the longest time. I remember getting into an argument in like second grade about it, and I was wrong. So I am really sorry to Paul Hennessy in Charlestown. <laughs> you were right. I was wrong. I hope this solves your wounds. <laughs> we need we need to review uh, that movie at some point. <laughs> I think. Well, Legend of Billie well, I'd like to do that one because that one makes a lot more sense than this. But uh, I, I think with Supergirl, we'll need to go through that. And just the problematic nature of what that looks like through the lens of the 2020s. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm totally down. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, my wife is our Patreon special. Yeah, my, my <laughs> wife has never seen it. And I finally just got her to watch Superman 3 and 4. So she's now seen all of the Christopher Reeve movies. Nice. Oh. Um, funny enough, and this is like one of the many, many reasons I, I love Dara to the ends of the earth. Uh, we watched three and we watched four and she was like, you know what? That last one was actually a lot more fun to watch than the third one. And I was like, yes. And she goes, but that third one, the scene where, where Clark Kent is fighting Superman, that was like really cool. Did they like not have any more budget left after they did that, sh that shot? And I was like, I don't know what the fuck happened to that movie, honey, but oh my God, if I could propose to you all over again right now. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> it was fantastic. She she hit the nail right on the head. It's it's sort of like recently she saw, I, I had said this to Leo, she saw the um, the Multiverse of Madness uh, Doctor Strange trailer, which, you know, that kind of works here. It's going to be dealing with all kinds of alternate reality takes on things. Um, she She watches it and one of the voices right away, she's like, maybe we should tell him. And it's clearly Patrick Stewart. And she just turned to me all wide and she went, that's Charles Xavier. And I was like, what? I mean, I, I know that, you know, he's professor X, but like she went proper with it. She wasn't like professor X or, Oh, that's the guy from the X-Men. No, she went full. I'm like, that's Charles. I'm like, Oh, I didn't know you were on a first name basis. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. It was just outstanding. But regardless of all that, um, yes, Hawkman and Hawkwoman, or uh, He Hawk and She Hawk. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. They uh, they are uh, floating through space. The Thanagarian ship, which I call the Hawk ship, but I don't think they ever mention it as such in this. I don't know why they fucking. Kind of looks like a bat a little bit. Like when you look at it, like, uh, when, you, when you get closer up, you can see like the front of the the, the face of it is literally like a fucking hawk. It has yeah, a, it's a beak, everything, but it, it shouldn't I, have ears like like. But yeah, know. I know it's weird. It's Thanagar, man. It's how they roll. <laughs> you know. Oh, I get it. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, so the whole the whole premise here is starting off. Um, you know, Superman and and the the hawks are uh are in their ship and uh he's you know he's just saying like you know he's he's ruminating to himself uh in a room alone you know just like you know i i need to you know i, I need to like kind of see what's going on like i know where i'm from and i know what i was told about where i'm from but does that actually mean that that krypton this planet is gone. Maybe there was a mistake. Maybe I was jettisoned away and everything was fine. You know, maybe it was just like a really bad earthquake and a lot of people survived, you know, and that's fair. I get it. Uh, but you know, they, they stick him away in a, in a room because the closer they get to the space where Krypton is, was supposed to be, uh, the more radiation that they're starting to see, um, pile up. That is incredibly similar to the uh, radiation signature of kryptonite. 
So they need to make sure that Superman is protected against that because, you know, that's the only shit that can kill him, of course. Um, and, you know, as as they're, they're going, we get a little bit of back and forth between Shayer and Cotter. Um, and, and I'm not saying that with a New England accent. It's Cotter, not Carter. They they That's another post-crisis tweak. He was Carter Hall. And then when it turns out he was from Thanagar, they changed his name to Qatar Hall. It's, oh, this is the Hawk World Hawkman. Yeah, Hawk okay. World Hawkman. Right. Yeah, this is this is Thanagar police force type of stuff. And um, you know, so they're they're just saying, you know, Superman seems like he's he's like really getting antsy in that back room. And Cotter's like, Oh, well, he's a man of action. He doesn't like staying still. But you know, too bad for him, because if he comes out here, he'll die. And uh, you know, they're they, they make mention exposition wise to us that, you know, uh, it's, it's a good thing that you lead lined it so he can be protected, but I'm sure it's driving him bonkers because it also blocks his x-ray vision. So he can't see shit, <laughs> which, you know, nothing like a blind Superman stuck in a fucking radiation proof room. Right. And, uh, you know, we, we kind of move along and Superman is still saying to himself, you know, like I can, I can like feel the kryptonite radiation, even through the, the lead lining here. And, I know it's like that's my planet of origin, Krypton. We're so close, and they're they're approaching. They they increase their speed, and then finally, um, Shaira says, "You know, once we clear this nebula, I should be able to get some better resolution on the on the shot on the camera shot." And uh, then Cotter says, "Like, oh, we're we're clearing now. Let's turn the forward scanning cameras on," and. They, they take a look and they're like, holy crap, Superman, do you see this? And he just looks and he goes, yes. And he just sees a gigantic green planet with a ring around it. And he says, it's the absolute last thing I ever expected to see, to find here. The planet Krypton, whole, as if no cataclysm had befallen it. And, uh, you know, they, they prepare to go into geostationary orbit. And uh, they're they're you know maintaining their distance as safely as they can, and uh, they start to get a reading on the planet, and uh, that's when Shayer says like, oh that's a that's not a solid planet, man. It's a it's a particle cloud around a molten core, and what happened was the gravity of the area it started to pull all the fragments of kryptonite that Krypton had become when it exploded. And it started to pull it all back into the mass that once was the planet. And so there is a molten core and all of this stuff forming around it. But essentially what that means is it's going to take millions or billions of years for that to form into a planet that could actually sustain life again. So at first glance, it does seem to be Krypton. But really, essentially what it is right now is the universe's largest chunk of kryptonite. Mm hmm. And, uh, you know, Superman, being the fucking genius he is in the lead line room, says, can you get closer? <laughs> you know, to, to which the Hawks, in the most diplomatic way, they're just like, uh, that's not the best idea, Superman, but it is the <laughs> fucking worst idea. So, no. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Hawkman, you know, that's Shea era. And Hawkman's like, yeah, my, my wife is right. Um, this is this is as close as we're getting, buddy. So, uh, you know, enjoy that camera view from your from your lead line room. And uh, of course, Superman's just like, no, I, I need to get closer. Please get me closer. And they're just like, well, 
you know, our ship, if it gets hit by any of these fragments, like it'll likely just knock us right out and we'll die. So this is really as, as close as we want to get. Um, and Suman's like, fine, I'll, I'll do it myself without the ship. <laughs> and Hawkman himself is like, well, if, uh, if that's supposed to be a joke, Superman, I'm afraid the humor eludes me. <laughs> Basically saying, uh, I'm used to jokes being funny, Supes. Maybe you should try it on sometime. <laughs> and, you know, he's, he's like, how long do you think you can survive out there, Superman? 10 seconds? 20 seconds? You're going to die, dummy. And, uh, you know, they was like, no, no. Like, you know, what about those spacesuits you have? Uh, you know, you, 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 lined, you lined this room with lead. What, why couldn't you line one of those spacesuits? So... Like, ah, all right, let's see what we got. And they grab one of their inexplicable Hawk spacesuits. I mean, it's branded and everything, gang. It has yep. a fucking Hawk symbol on the front of it with with a gigantic glass dome, no less. I That does not seem very safe. Leaded, leaded glass, I'm guessing. Yeah. Well, no, what it is, um, the lead polymer spray that they used to coat the room that they were keeping Superman safe in, they used to they have just enough left to coat the inside of the suit that they're going to let Superman wear. The uh, reason for that, what's is that? It, is it transparent aluminum? I don't think sure. they have the formula for that yet. <laughs> How <laughs> do we know the guy didn't invent it himself? They have lots of things on Thanagar that we can't, we can't even conceive of. They have nuclear vessels. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, they they line the inside of the suit because, uh, as they explain, like we if we lined the outside of it and like the tiniest like rock scratched that that like little bit of lead layer that we gave, you would be dead instantaneously. But, but so, here's the here's the point: he can't use his uh, he can't use his X-ray vision to see through lead. But with a complete lead coating, he shouldn't be able to see through the glass dome. That's that's my my point. Yeah. Well, I know no. it's not a perfect system, but that's, that's what I was thinking. It's like maybe the glass has some sort of extra radiation thing in it, but it's it doesn't seem to be addressed. Yeah, I I, I wasn't really thinking of it in those terms. I mean, this is probably like a, a spray that's so thin that it wouldn't actually like block vision. And you got to think we're talking about Superman being able to use X-ray vision through lead. I think his regular vision would be able to just see no problem. But regardless, like this is definitely a situation where any powers that Superman has, he's going to want to not use. Yeah. Uh, because especially, I mean, they even say to him, like, you know, hey, watch your breathing, <laughs> because if you take too deep a breath, you may just stretch past the spacesuit. And once again, that whole layer of lead that we put in there, uh, it'll it'll breach and you'll die. Yeah, and, I mean, and that surprised me too. I didn't realize that he had to breathe. Um, yeah, Superman, uh, especially in the John Byrne era, had to breathe. Uh, the way that it was set, and I could be wrong, but for the longest time, was that he could hold his breath and his blood would be both fully oxygenated for about 20 minutes before uh. he'd need to take another. Uh, that's why uh, in the 80s going into 90s era, uh, when you have like Superman in exile, uh, when he goes out into space, he actually he leaves with uh, oxygen. Because he can survive the vacuum of space, but he still needs to breathe occasionally. Um, it's not until he ha he uh, he comes back during the return of Superman, the reign of Superman. He gets he goes through what what they call power surge. That was the the story arc um, where his powers are just increasing tremendously, 
that he goes to take a deep breath to hold it for a while while he's like getting trapped in like a force field force field from some kind of villain. And he's like, Whoa, what the hell? Like he, he can feel it. He's like, I don't think I need to breathe again for like a while. This is, I feel fine. Like I'm, I'm not, I don't even feel close to needing to take another breath for 20 minutes. Like this is, I think I'd be good for like a day, you know? And, it, that's, I mean, that ended up being a whole problem in and of itself, and they had to use parasites to like siphon off most of his excess solar r- radiation at that point. But it just goes to show you how how much Superman's powers can increase depending on the solar radiation that he absorbs. At this point in time, though, I mean, they were still in wi- wisely, and this has sort of been the baseline since they were going on a, a much more baseline Superman. Uh, where he he did have great strength in all of his powers, but you weren't seeing a lot of the Silver Age ridiculous stuff occurring. Uh, you know, he was a Superman, but he still had limits—not weaknesses, just limits. He couldn't he couldn't just go. He couldn't move planets. You know, shit like that. Um, and and I can appreciate that. I, I do like that Superman could go out in space, but he still needed to make sure he could take a breath every twenty minutes or so. Um, and that's if he's not like fighting Lobo and gets the wind knocked out of him or some shit. Invincible kind of did that too when they had uh, Mark Grayson riding on Mars, uh, like on the spaceship, and he brought along just a, a small supply of oxygen. Yeah, and even then, with the small supply of oxygen, that was like most of mostly a in case of emergency break glass situation, um, because much like his Viltrum, my father, he actually didn't need to breathe; like he could take a deep breath and, and be fine. Um, which also, you know, if anybody listening, you, you haven't read Invincible and they do have the cartoon series, the animated series that's been on Amazon. Uh, they first season came out, they're doing the second season soon. Uh, do yourself a favor and check that out. Uh, it's, it's a fantastic homage and mashup of all the different stories that you've seen for like stuff like Spider-Man and, and Superman and Superboy over the past 50 years like it just takes all of these wonderful things and, and mashes them up into something brand new yet familiar and i can't recommend it enough it's phenomenal uh robert kirkman hit it out of the park on that one but enough about that take on on the superhero tropes we'll jump back to superman and the hawks um you know they they suit him up and he uh he fucking jumps out basically yelling Geronimo from the back deck of the Hawk ship. And uh, they, they make sure to let him know like, Hey, here's a, a radiation shield like level and it'll let you know what the rads are around you. So if you start to see it get too high, you gotta, you gotta spin around and come back. Um, and so he goes out there and he's kind of, you know, just by himself in the suit and he's musing to himself, like, you know, my heart's pounding and I force myself to breathe slow and steady so i don't burst the suit like hawkwoman had said uh and then i just fly into the the, into the debris and i see with my own eyes the swirling remnants of a planet once called krypton and uh he just kind of late he's staying still with his arms and legs splayed out just above the planet that you know he was from and uh What's really cool is like this kind of harkens back to what John Byrne had set up in the Man of Steel miniseries, uh, where Jor-El uh, appears by the fifth or sixth issue out of the six issues, um, the hologram from the ship that he was sent in, and it imbues all the knowledge of Krypton 
into Kal-El's memory. So he becomes fluent in Kryptonese and knows all of the culture and history and art and in fighting styles, everything about Krypton. It's all downloaded into his brain. And uh, he is now just kind of like opening himself up to all of that to sort of imagine Krypton as it may have been at one point in time. He remembers these things without ever having experienced it. And he finds himself, you know, sort of, reminiscing about his own predicament stuck in this suit and what like the Kryptonian battle suits were like and how they were lumbering and clumsy, which come into play later on in the Superman books themselves, because that same Kryptonian battle armor that he's talking about is what allows him to travel from the fortress of solitude to where the heroes are getting together to face off against cyborg Superman. Uh, when he sh shows up back from the dead in the black suit with the silver S that has become, uh, way too iconic for its own good <laughs> and uh you know he he starts to you know kind of go through what he knows happened where jor-el approaches the science council and tells them like you know does does his uh his marlon brando thing like i tell you what planet krypton will explode within 30 days and uh in this he is basically having what amounts to be a, a fever dream brought on likely by the combination of anxiety that he is feeling with being as close to all of this kryptonite as possible. The one thing he knows for sure can kill him as well as the radiation itself, regardless of this thin layer of lead, like it is likely still affecting him slightly. And now uh, he he's basically hitting a bit of delirium. We can actually see him uh, sweating in the suit as it closes up on him. And he is saying, he's actually like, saying out loud what's happening in his fever dream and instead of instead of the science council saying like oh jor-el you're a madman and you don't know what you're talking about they say to him like oh no jor-el this is awful news what can we do mm -hmm. and you're our greatest scientist tell us and they actually listen to him and uh he he explains to them you know the idea he has for space arcs which is what uh the ship he sends kal-el to earth in was the prototype for uh, and they say, that's a great idea, but you know, the green plague is still killing Kryptonians left and right, which was radiation poisoning that was coming up from the core as the core of the planet destabilized. And he, uh, he basically manages to find a cure for that in the meantime, while the space arcs are being finished. So essentially in this, this fever dream, this alternate reality that Superman is now living in his own head, uh, his father also found a cure for kryptonite. You know, so now we're seeing that the Kryptonians have have basically figured out how to save themselves from the destruction of their planet and what the fragments of their destroyed planet could possibly do to them in the future. And uh, we see a mass of space arcs leaving this entire fleet, just booking it from Krypton, and they they watch as it explodes and. They all hail Jor-El as not only the savior of, of the Kryptonian race, but also now their their leader, their their you know exo ex facto leader, and uh, they make their way to a new planet, which is Earth. Uh, he explains that under the yellow sun, that their bodies and minds will become enriched, and they'll become a race of supermen far superior to the natives of that world which, as we know from John Byrne's Man of Steel, 
Earth was the planet that Jor-El was looking at to send Kal-El to uh, because he saw that it was going to be it might be a little rougher around the edges insofar as you know how developed they were compared to Krypton, but he would thrive. Uh, and so he, he used that same logic for the entirety of the Kryptonian race and they land and they're all, they're all, you know, ecstatic that they made it there. And they, they even say like, Oh, look at that cute little earth house. It's so adorable. <laughs> and uh, you see that where they landed was in Smallville, Kansas, just outside the farm of the Kents. And the first human beings that they actually make contact with are Jonathan and Martha Kent. And, uh, you know, it plays out very much like, oh, be careful. It's like one of them science fiction stories you love so much. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's actually kind of funny because if you, if you look back at what John Byrne did with the miniseries, um, when they first find the pod that Kal-El is in, Jonathan Kent is the one that's like, whoa, whoa, don't be careful not to touch it, Martha. And she scolds him. She she says, "This isn't one of those science fiction stories you love so much." But in this, when when he's the one that's welcoming the aliens, she tells him, "Be careful," and literally says the same exact thing, but in a different context. This isn't one of those science fiction stories you love so much. So it's like, it's it's really cool how you use the same line, but it means two completely different things because of the situations involved. And uh, here we see that Jor-El is actually. He's, he's kind of a good dude. He really he really did approach coming to Earth with the idea of being altruistic and collaborative. And uh, he really wanted to work hand in hand with the human being natives of Earth to try to create something new and, and better than what either society had had. And right on the heels of that, you have other Kryptonians, you know, gathering up behind everything and saying like oh this place isn't great i don't like how like the open skies and the, the air is chilled and you know we we're gonna need to completely reshape this world if it's gonna be here for us and you know clearly not learning any of the lessons from krypton you know just getting ready to probably do the same exact thing to this new planet that's endowing them with these newfound abilities as well and uh as we go through, we see that it's it becomes a series of journal entries for uh, from Jor-El, and he's he's starting to notice that cracks are forming. He's he's getting worried because he promised a golden age for all for everyone, and uh, he's just seeing that regardless of the the miracles that they've been able to accomplish, a lot of his fellow Kryptonians have set themselves apart from the rest of, of earth society. And, and they sort of like loom above, you know, the, the best comparison that we can make would be like, you know, the gods of Olympus looking down on humanity. And that doesn't sit well with him. He, you know, he doesn't see them. So he, he doesn't see them as being better than the humans. If it, they're, they're visitors they they were welcomed to this planet and they should be, tr they should be treating everyone else, you know, well, instead of just taking advantage and uh, they even took Metropolis and renamed it New Candor. You know, they, they've just completely disregarded human society. And uh, then he starts to hear about the, the imprisonment and incarceration of all humans for their own protection, as the Kryptonians are saying. And uh, they've, you know, he's seeing how the isolation that Kryptonians have lived in their entire lives 
they they denied their physical selves and everything was just always about you know logic and and math and science but now because of the superpowers they've developed the the physicality that's involved with a lot of those same things that they'd always been focused on is is acting like a dangerous drug when mixed as a component into that that mindset and it's it's doing no good for any of the the denizens of this planet and uh he finally realizes that the only way to stop anything from happening to the people that welcomed them there is to get rid of his own kryptonian heritage shed his bio suit and join the humans in resistance against the kryptonians and uh he does so by by uh actually taking like metal from the ship well some of the ships that they landed in and uh just kind of making an artificial kryptonite uh, that the cure that he figured out for the green plague would not work with uh and that's the only way that he can he can figure that they'd be able to kill any of his fellow kryptonians and uh you know they've they've been fighting there's a, a war and the fact they've taken out maybe a thousand Kryptonians, which, you know, it doesn't sound like much, but when they all have the powers of Superman, that's, uh, that's nothing to sneeze at, but the world is just war torn and dystopic and, and just fucking terrible. And it's not at all what, a, a, you know, a, a, an altruistic scientist like Jor-El wanted when they, when they landed. And, and one, one thing that I don't know if you had mentioned earlier is that he did have that, um, cure for kryptonite poisoning and he took it himself yes so nobody else has it except for him so he's got a one-up on every other kryptonian yeah he's he's definitely he's definitely trying to hedge hedge bets for himself but once again it's not even like he's doing it for him he's doing it to help others you know i mean if anything it's like okay well you know this is this is definitely superman's dad like this it's it's the nature versus nurture scenario and it's it's kind of nice to see like with everybody else being an absolute fucking scumbag from krypton that jor-el was like the one guy who led them there and it's like it was his own naivete and belief that people could be good that got them there that he really thought would govern them like oh look we'll all we'll all work together everything will be fine wrong jor-el absolutely wrong sir and uh they've they've been fighting this war for a while and they uh they, they get to the point where they've they've just been going at it for a little over half a decade and there's only one kryptonian left besides Jorel that they need to take out and it's lara his intended his betrothed his wife for lack of a better term on krypton as it was written at this point in time and uh you know she she gives the whole you know like typical villain we're not so different you and i kind of speech <laughs> and uh you know she's she starts off like oh and have you come to see that freedom properly restored Joel? to see anarchy restored and of course he's like lara no but 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 why and uh you know she's just like yeah it's me the chick you said you love Joel." And now it seems the only one to stand between you and insanity. And, you know, he, he's like, all right, I'm nuts. Okay, sure, sure. You're like, you, 
You sought to crush the human spirit. You sought to turn this free and vital world into an empty caricature of everything that made our home planet cold and heartless. Right. I'm the whack job here. And uh, he's like, no, nah, this this isn't right. And, you know, I did love you once, but, you know, I, I, I can't I can't let you do this. If it's me that stands between you and this 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 Holocaust, essentially, then, yeah, I'm going to choose the people here over you every time. And she she just kind of comes back at him with, OK, fine. If you're going to do it, go ahead and do it. You know, Get rid of all the Kryptonians. But uh, maybe there's one thing you should see, because. I'm not the last Kryptonian that's going to fight for Krypton. There's another generation just waiting to take the, take the place of this one upon the battlefront to fight for Krypton. And that's when a little guy in a bio suit comes from around the corner. And she says to him, look upon your enemy, Jor-El. Look upon your enemy and tell me you will also take a hand in slaying him. And that's when he looks at the kid and he goes, no, those eyes, that face. Tell me this is not. It's, it's not. But it is Jor-El, conceived in the gestation chambers before we left Krypton. It's your son, Kal-El. No! I mean, it's a long fucking no. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> it's a really long no. Um, in a reverse and, S, too. Yes. <laughs> Gotta love it. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, it, you, see the, you see the reverse S shape of the no, and it comes up to, to the next panels with... <laughs> clearly Superman is screaming this in his fever dream. And that's all that Hawkman and Hawkwoman are hearing. And they're in the ship. They're like, all right, that's it. He's gone off his fucking nut. <laughs> Get him in this fucking ship. Now, whatever's happening out there, we cannot just sit back. And, uh, you know, they, they, they go to pull him in and, uh, you know, he's, he's just so far zonked that he he's, he's out of it. There's no way he's in control of his faculties. So this is Jair. my favorite page, by the way, where you've got the two um, Hawk people and Superman on the bridge of the ship. That yeah, is just it's, a gorgeous page. It really is. Um, Shayera goes out, grabs him, and uh, you know Hawk Hawkman is is giving her instruction like, hey, you know, get him safely aboard. And as soon as you're in, I'm 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 going to light speed to get us the fuck out of here as far away from this ball of kryptonite as we we can get. And uh, then it it comes back to them and. It's just this like beautiful, like half two thirds splash almost um, where it shows Superman with the Hawks looking out through this view window and in crypt, this Krypton esque planet well, well in the distance. And uh, he's just explaining to him like, you know, it's good to be it's good to be back to Earth and. You know, I was absolutely completely delirious, and I I thought I thought maybe it, it was it was really the way I, I imagined it as I was out there, and that I'd never make it back. And they're like, "What exactly did you see out there, man?" He's like, "Oh, well, I guess it was kind of like a morality play, uh, like a lesson in human nature, in, in the harsh truths of abuse of power." Which I would argue, maybe not human nature, because it was all about Kryptonians, but still. Um, and, you know, he he comes out of it with, which I think, you know, any powerful individual should. You know, he, he was surrounded by nothing but his weakness that, that sort of opened up his mind to what, what alternate uh, takes could have, could have gone down. 
and he said, you know, he he's learned of his alien origins and he's he's cherished the notion that the race of Krypton was somehow above the pettiness that has plagued humankind. But he he says he's been shown a version of what might have been if he had not been the sole survivor of that doomed planet Krypton. And as much as he's loath to admit it, he's afraid that his vision was accurate that a race of Superman can't help but be a race of conquerors, even if they begin with the best intentions. And from that point, he actually, back in Metropolis, he goes to likely what is Star Labs. And That's uh, why I was wondering what it was. Yeah, I, I would figure it'd be something like Star Labs. And, uh, you know, he's he's mixing together a bunch of chemicals, and he's thinking to himself, he's like, in my fantasy, I saw, he's like, I, or Jor-El, created a cure for kryptonite poisoning. And I remember the combination of the chemicals he used to achieve that serum. And now, if I've been successful, my microscopic vision should reveal nothing! Absolutely nothing! <laughs> Stupid! And uh, it turns out it's just inert. Um, it, it was just gobbledygook. His brain was thrown at him. Uh, and as he as he leaves, you know, he kind of, his demeanor is like, eh, you know, okay. No biggie. I mean, I'll just, that's fine. I, I, I don't mind having a weakness to kryptonite. And he says to himself, you know, I flatter myself that it's my own strength of spirit that prevents me from using my power. But who can tell? Perhaps I need kryptonite as a constant reminder of my own mortality. A constant reminder that being a man is always more important than being a superman. And uh, that brings us to the end of the st- of the story superman number 18 such a um, good quote at the end there it really is i mean john byrne has a clear grasp on the character of superman of that i have no doubt his dialogue too i mean it's like when you've read enough john byrne you can just pick out it's such like a silver age dialogue and you're like i i get it i know who this is i know where he's going and all that and you know the the guy has been so instrumental with all of these characters from Fantastic Four, Superman, X Men. You know, and, and not that he wrote a lot of X Men, but he was there and had some sort of influence on it with his storytelling. So yeah. Byrne knows his way around a comic tale. Yeah, well, and it's important too. I mean, you bring up the Silver Age. I mean, this is a guy who who came up reading all of those books when he was younger. You know, th- those are. Those are what he was raised on. That's that that was what he suckled at the teat of. And he clearly, I mean, to to come into the industry and, and work as both a writer and illustrator, you have to have an affinity for the medium and the characters to start. But for him to come into the 80s in especially with DC, uh, reinvent from the Silver Age to say, like, you know, the the hokiness and the goofiness of a lot of the that stuff that we had at that time, that was fun. But that's not what we can do nowadays. Like audiences are too savvy. Like the readers are too savvy. We can't we can't just play it up like, oh, little kids read this, you know, because even when little kids read it, you know what? Little kids are smarter than you give them credit for. And for him to take the ideas of Superman and Krypton and make them very high concept sci fi and to really showcase the difference in approach for for humanity, like what it means to be a person. Krypton versus Earth and how Earth really makes Superman who he is. It actually puts an emphasis on the fact that he is Clark Kent first and foremost 
Superman second and Kal-El third. Uh, and I think that's very important distinction to make because a lot of people, I think, get it misconstrued that he is Superman and he pretends to be Clark Kent um, with the way that John Byrne approached it and having Superman, having Clark Kent develop his powers slowly over puberty, which I definitely think was a beat he took from X-Men by having having his development tied into how he grew physically. Um, I think that was a wise move, but it also took away some of the sillier moments from the Silver Age, like where you have a superpowered toddler roaming around and, and what have you. Like, how do you explain that? It just doesn't. It just doesn't work. Uh, and for him to go in and explore the, that difference that we had seen in the initial miniseries he did after Crisis on Infinite Earths, to really say like, okay, we've seen what happens when this this cold planet sends one of their own to to us and we raise their their offspring as a human being thankfully he was found by the right people and they brought him up with good values and he understands what it's like to be altruistic to understand that good people do things for other people and there's really nothing more that you need to know past that good people do things for other people um but to see jor-el in this this delirium this alternate reality that he experienced in his own mind be related insofar as his own values to what clark kent knew like he was a good person for krypton especially he was a good person he was concerned about saving lives and making the best life for everyone involved that is one of the things that superman is focused on it doesn't matter where you're from who you are he wants everyone to be okay. And Jorel could not stand with what he was seeing. And that's why he had to break rank against his own people and side with those who needed the help. And, you know, to, to break it all down and have it eventually get to the point where he was experiencing this as his own Kryptonian father. But then ultimately the thing that breaks him at the end is the revelation that he is there on earth and was the first kryptonian born with powers that's what brings superman back where the hawks have to pull him back like that story we still don't actually know how it ends we we don't know how that morality play goes as superman put it but the important sequence is afterwards where it causes him to ruminate and be contemplative yeah you know what it 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 sucks that that happened but Sometimes things happen for a reason, and it's probably for the best that I'm the only per person that has these abilities that can do what I do, and that you know I am the way I am. Because look what would have happened otherwise, you know. And I think I think that's that's one of the best things you can do with any well-known character is to really take a skewed look and kind of take them, you know, just like a little off center. And, and do that what if and, and have it be meaningful. You know, it's it's one thing to read a what if or an else world. And by the end of it, it's like, oh, OK, so this got back to what status quo is for what we, what we know. Or, wow, this went like so, so far off. But wow, what a badass ending. And there's no real no real meaning to it. Whereas in one single issue of Superman in a monthly series back in 1988, these guys took. A simple story of Superman trying to confirm 
that his home planet actually was destroyed and turned it into a full-blown dissection of what it means to be a person with that much power and the difference between where you're from and where you go. You know, that, that to me is, is, is everything. And that's part of the reason why I think, you know, John Burns tackling of the character has set the, has set the bar for many, many, many years. I mean, everybody has tried to build upon that since we've had numerous iterations with Mark Wade and Jeff Johns and friggin' Max Landis and Frank Miller. I mean, Everybody, you're exactly right, and it, it's funny because this goes back to another episode that we had recorded about the um, the last son of Krypton and then the last son of Earth, and you had actually alluded to kind of this story, um, maybe not this one specifically, but you know you can see those sort of parallels, like with Jonathan and with this Jor-El, you know, um, in in those sort of stories, and you can see that this is kind of the foundation that they built that story on. So it's just kind of interesting to kind of see them come full full circle here where I'm like, oh, look at look at this. Like, oh, yeah, that kind of reminds me of there. And then I go back to the other ones in that terrible high council where they just didn't give a fuck, you know, <laughs> on, yeah. on Krypton. And I'm like, it's kind of cool peeling back the layers of this character. And I think um, I'm really enjoying the way that you're presenting these stories because I've never read any of these. I've seen this cover and um you know, like the first time we got to read Last Son of Krypton and all that. And I, I don't know if that was Dave Gibbons or or who wrote that one or if it was someone else. But it, it's it's cool because it's like, oh, yeah, this is definitely highly based off of this sort of idea that there's this weird, you know, um, bureau, bureaucratic Krypton that's so into like classism and all that. It's such a weird circumstance, but it's just pretty yeah. cool. Um, it, it the last last son of Earth and its sequel, um, uh, Last Stand on Krypton, those else worlds. They were written by Steve Gerber. Gerber, um, that's who it is. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, it, they are they are mired in the designs that were set up by John Byrne, uh, the the bio suits and the you know the gestation chambers and, and all that all that cool jazz, um, all the stuff that makes it really like super science fictiony. You know, not just like shoving a baby into a fucking rocket ship and crossing your fingers as you blast it into space. <laughs> um, you know, and I do appreciate that too. The fact that John Byrne very much took the time, even briefly, to set up that like this was a baby that was actually yet to be born. It was going to gestate in that chamber on the on the prototype ship that was sent out, but it actually had a destination in mind that Jorel had been researching Earth, and he said like this is where it's going. You know, there was no chance involved with that. And, like, that makes far more sense to me than, like I said, just fucking, fucking tie your baby to a firecracker. And hope he pulled it up on his magic 3DB. Insane. Absolutely nuts. Um, but, yeah, like, even even in that story, I mean, Jor-El is set apart from the rest of, of Krypton. And I don't mean physically, but, like, he is he is a scientist. But there's something a bit more to him where it's not just curiosity. He, he actually cares, which is as foreign to him as it is to everyone else in his society. He can't explain it. He doesn't know why, but he does. And once again, thankfully, because he does, it, it ends up taking this child in, in Last Son of Earth. And he adopts him as Kal-El, 
and he becomes a good person, a good man, a hero. And, you know, there's something to be said for either way, whether or not you have him on Krypton or you have him on Earth, whether it's Clark Kent being adopted or Kal-El being adopted, that hopefully he ends up with somebody like Jor-El or somebody like Jonathan Kent that will steer him in the right direction and allow him to use his natural gifts for for the good of others not just not just for his own gain um it's it's very interesting to see how john byrne and mike mignola and carl kessel did this tale and how very tempting especially when you think about it through the lens of today how very tempting it could have been to just make an evil superman story and instead they kept Jorel, who Superman, Kal-El, Clark Kent, however you want to refer to him in this context, was was embodying in his own his own delirium. But how they they kept him as the voice of reason and the voice of altruism and made the entire Kryptonian race the evil ones. That everyone else who wasn't the character that we're familiar with that had those powers were corrupt. And, and just absolutely abhorrent in almost every sense of the word, absolutely inhuman. I was surprised that he killed them all like that, that, um, and I mean, I get how it worked out because he was the one who was, you know, cured of the kryptonite poisoning and he was immune to it. Then he ended up killing them all. And I'm like, I don't know if he's exactly a hero, if he's killed a thousand of these people for subjugating the planet. Well, he's, he's you definitely know- used the phantom zone projector for less. So true, true. Uh, but the other side of it is, you know, maybe he, first of all, it was war. I mean, war was declared between races. Well, it was also what? Thousands of years. No, no. Six years. I could have sworn it said it was like, no, thousands, th- thousands of Kryptonians, six years. Oh, okay. okay. Um, but, but that's the thing is he, he came there with every intention of, of both races working together. And his race started to subjugate and destroy the natives of the planet that they showed up for. I mean, he he sided with the people that needed him, and it was not the Kryptonians. And he because he had already done that, he sided with his race. He gave them he gave them their chance, and they literally started making the same mistakes, only amplified because of their superpowers that they had on Krypton for millennia. And I think for him, I mean, obviously this is a little bit of an editorialization, but knowing what I know about the Superman mythos and Krypton and even some of the stuff that we saw just briefly in this, and we talked about like the dickhead science high council and all that. Um, I think he, he basically had to sit back and say, you know, they had, they had a chance. They, they were given this chance and now these people need someone to help them fight against them. Well, I'm going to do that, and it's going to need to be by any means necessary. If we don't kill them, they will kill every one of us. And I think that's the, the key turning point is that Jorel started to see himself as us with the, hum- with the humans of Earth as opposed to part of Kryptonian society at that point. I mean, he shed the, the last vestiges, as he said. Um, and that that I think is is the most important thing is that he saw he identified more with the quote weak race 
that needed needed more assistance than the stronger race that he was naturally a part of. I mean that that right there boils down to what his son Superman proper is. I mean he he identifies with humanity. That's what makes him so good. It's not his powers. It's that he has those powers but uses them uses them as a protector you know he the champion of the oppressed that that is right there in the 1938 version of superman created by jerry siegel and joe schuster and so that so. that is out and out what jorel jorel was he was the champion of the oppressed during that war so what you're saying with great power comes great responsibility <laughs> that's why i was thinking that <laughs> no um what i'm saying is with great power there must also come great responsibility Oh, no, that's what the other guys say. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll say it. I'll say it the way Martin Sheen said it as Uncle Ben in The Amazing Spider-Man. If you have the ability to do something, then it, it is your obligation to do that thing. <laughs> I just read. What was I reading? Where they actually said it twice. They said it the incorrect way, and they said it the correct way. Um. Hmm. Like you, you, like it was a comic where they said it. Yeah, it was a Spider Man comic. Yeah, I, it, you lost it's, us. It's the <laughs> Sam Raimi movie that really screwed the pooch on it because they yeah. used it as the tagline for the movie, but they, they just, they, they truncated it. So it was just with great power comes great responsibility. And it, it just sucks because, like, the whole, the whole saying, the way Stan Lee designed it, it it's applicable for every superhero every superhero out there but it, it's a very distinct difference the the saying is with great power there must also come great responsibility in saying that you can have great power but that doesn't mean the responsibility will come with it and that's what the tagline of the spider-man movie says with great power comes great responsibility that's not true we know that because at the very beginning of the movie, he gets great power and there is no great responsibility that comes with it. That's what allows his uncle Ben to get killed because he misses the part where that's his problem. Right. So applicable for this tale though, like just, uh, yeah. And incredibly apropos. Yeah. I mean, with Jor-El, when you look at it through the lens of how Stan Lee meant it for Spider-Man and every superhero with great power, there must also come great responsibility. He bore the responsibility for what was happening to their adopted home. He had the power to bring them there. It's because of him that they arrived, all of his research, everything. And when he saw what was happening, he understood that it was now his responsibility to bring it to an end because no one else was going to be able to do it. He had the power to stop it. He enabled himself and he helped those who were being oppressed to fight back. So he used that, that great power he had to finally take responsibility for everything that was going on. That's, that's really what it boils down to. But just because you have the power doesn't mean you use it responsibly because the, the case that proves that first iteration, the, the incorrect one, the tagline for Spider-Man the movie, wrong is the kryptonians that that were also there on earth they had great they had great power what great responsibility did they have 
None. Only to themselves. That's that's the only and way that they not, would look at it. And that's not really a responsibility, is it? No, absolutely not. So, you know, it, it, it much like Superman said, you know, it sort of ended up being a morality play in his head. But I find it to be one of the more intriguing uh, alternate reality takes for myself personally. Uh, I I read this. I had this comic book when I was six years old, and I read it cover to cover. Um, I I don't think it's quite in tatters. I do believe I still have the issue, uh, and it was one of the very first comics that I read that really got me interested and intrigued by alternate reality tales. I can see why you know, and it, it's um, it's got enough different and it kind of ties it back to the the real life where you're like, Oh, I was just in a dream and you were there and you, and you, you know, it's kind of got like that, those aspects going on. And it's yeah. got some cool cameos from characters that are like, all right, I guess Hawkman and Hawkwoman would be the ones to take them. You know, maybe like now it would be someone different, but it's like back then you're like, yeah, I guess they would. Yeah. I mean, back, back in 1988, I mean, who, who were your options to, to fly Superman out in a big old spaceship? John Stewart, maybe. I mean, it, it, no, and, not even, because not even. He, he didn't have that sort of uh, power yet. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah you, I mean, you, you, you don't really very limited. I, uh, I was just checking to see, I, I could have sworn I had this issue, but actually I, earliest one I have is 19. Oh, well, oh, so right I, before it. No, right after uh, it. Right after. Oh, it. right, right after. Yeah. Duh. Yeah. The next month, July 1988. You j- missed it by that much. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, this is this is one of my favorites. Um, you know, I was very surprised in high school when I, you know, because every once in a while, we're all comic book geeks. You know, we're all comic book dorks. We we pull out back issues every once in a while and be like, oh, I remember this, and you 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 flip through. Uh, I was stunned pleasantly stunned to see that it was mike mignola who had done this with with john byrne i was i was absolutely floored um especially because at that point in time i was i was delving pretty deep into hellboy and what have you uh and also just to see how well mike mignola worked within the confines of you know, traditional superhero comic book with with Superman as your main character, and then to see how his own style came shines through all together with something like Hellboy at Dark Horse. It's like wow, like how how much did he did he have to like rein in what he wanted to do on so many projects with his yeah. own design work until he could finally find this place to break free and do what he felt was was what you know, was building up inside of him, you know, and I mentioned to you recently, Justin, outside of the shows, obviously, but uh, that I recently watched Atlantis, uh, the lost empire, the Disney uh, cartoon, the movie, the animated movie. And uh, as I was watching it, I was like, wow, what, what is up with these designs as, as I was going through, like seeing all the, the weird kind of square spiral work and, and what have you in, in the architecture and, you know, so, sort of the dress of, of everybody in Atlantis. And as it turns out, Mike Mignola was hired as a uh, production designer by Disney for Atlantis, the Lost Empire. And they took all of his preliminary designs that he made for them and got them Disney-fied to put up on the screen for that movie. So, 
Like it's weird when when you're a comic book nerd to realize that you're recognizing something without realizing that you're recognizing <laughs> exactly. something. Yeah, it's it, it was it was cool. It was it was a real gas, honestly. Like, of course, my wife was sitting there watching me watching it next to me, and I'm like, oh my god, that's I think that's Mike Mignola stuff. And <laughs> she was like, okay, Brandon, if you say so, buddy. <laughs> I'm sure it's I'm sure it's Mike Mike Manola. Is that what you said his name was? And I'm like. Fuck you, lady. You actually know who I'm talking about. You don't even realize it. And I actually, I actually had a kid that that had that name, not Mignola, but Mike Manola. He worked for me at Blockbuster. Oh my god. <laughs> and I'm like, did you do you know Mike Mignola? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I actually paused the movie. I was like, you know, fuck this shit. You know, you, I'm not I'm not putting up with this from with this from you right now, lady. And so You're I telling me that there's it's a society <laughs> of Atlanteans in the F-Lane cars. Whoa, this is heavy. <laughs> Where's that board again? <laughs> that, is there something wrong with the Earth's gravitational pull in the future? <laughs> I'm going to get the natural glycerin. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I tried to explain. I tried to explain who fucking that was. Oh, Guido movie. Sarducci? Yeah, I was like, oh, it's Father Guido mean, Sarducci. Yeah. And Dara was like, who? And I was like, I swear to God. I I will I I will never hit you, but I completely understand <laughs> how fucking spousal abuse can start. I get uh, it. <laughs> you know, like I would never in a million years. Like, honey, do I, you remember seeing Casper? <laughs> <laughs> Dude, she had no clue, none, none whatsoever. But yeah, I I paused the movie and I was like, boom, Mike Mignola and, and Dara was just like, still means nothing to me. And I was like, all right, hold on, here, let's see if this means nothing to you. And I pulled up. Hellboy, <laughs> like on my phone, I was like, "You recognize that?" And she was like, "Yeah." I'm like, "He created this Hellboy, the comic books, like you know all the crazy, like weird, cartoonish, like look that Guillermo del Toro adopted for the movies that he made." Yeah, adapted from Mike Mignola's illustrations from the comic book he created. And she was like, "Oh," I'm like, "Didn't you go to <laughs> art school? What the fuck?" <laughs> See if she was here, she could just look at my shelf of of mostly Hellboy items and paraphernalia. Indeed, so. I mean she's she's seen enough of the stuff, but yeah, it, it was. I I started geeking out about it, and and of course, like I forget that like when it's she and I watching something or what have you, like I'm the geek, I'm the dork, you you know. So like, I I turn to her and I'm like, <gasps> and she's like, <laughs> explain explain it to me, dork. You you know you're going to just just do it, just pause the thing, get this ten minute rant out of your system, and then we'll start watching it again. <laughs> That's how it goes every time. I mean, I literally had to do that for Superman and Lois on the on the CW. Like I I paused the fucking show for like ten minutes and explained a whole bunch of shit, and then came back, and then something happened. I was like, so like everything I just told you, don't worry about for the most part, because apparently they're not going to do that. <laughs> yeah. <they're> gonna... <laughs> We just I broke watched down, the pilot I broke, yesterday. I broke down the reign of the Superman for <laughs> the entire reign of Superman and how it was based off of the death of Superman. And then they did some shit in season two. And I was like, or not, you know, <laughs> that's fine. No worries. They're just subverting every expectation, which I should have seen coming. Yeah. I, I've taken your recommendation. Finally, we started watching the pilot yesterday and um, just, excellent like i i'm like wow 
I really, really friggin' like this show. I like where they're going with it. The acting is on par. Like, the casting is spot on. Like, the two kids that they have in there are really good. And I'm like, oh, okay, Lana, yeah, it, all right. You know. It's, it's, a, it's a really interesting um, new sort of alternate take on Superman. It's not something that we've seen before, uh, it, especially in the live-action medium. Uh, we've not had stories with Superman as a father and husband like this mm-hmm. with, with two kids. And, you know, it, it'd be really super, no pun intended, but really super easy for this show to just devolve into like a, a CW soap opera-esque um, series. And they've like actually... The Flash format or like, as I yeah. call it, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer sort yeah, of format. Yeah, exactly. But they, and Leo and I have talked about this, uh, they, they're keeping the seasons short. You know, they, I think at most maybe 16 episodes and not trying to go like 23, 24 episodes, which is always a good sign, I think, because it reduces the um, the chance for filler to occur. Yep, exactly. And with this, I mean, it's it's a so far, and you'll you'll see what 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 I'm talking about, Justin. Like so far, it's a beautifully constructed alternate take on like, okay, what if Superman, you know, in Lois had twin boys and he they brought them back to Smallville. Like Clark is unemployed and you know he's just trying to help raise these boys, one of whom has has powers. You know, and that's that's where that's where we land like i like the fact that lana lang is married and you know she loves her husband it's not an easy perfect marriage but they they they're working hard on it and they have they have a couple of great kids themselves um i also really honestly like the fact that lana lang's husband in it is um he's of mexican descent uh and you know, not that this means anything to you right now, but like the episode that's coming up next week when they're coming back from sweeps, um, deals with their daughter's quinceanera. Oh, so, no kidding. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, it, it's it's really cool. I thought and, you were uh, gonna say you like the fact that her husband is a douche. So- <laughs> well, you know what? Here's the thing: he is, but he isn't. And and you know that's that even in the first season, like as much as I wanted to fucking hate him. Because his whole thing is like, oh, the town, the town, the town. It's like, how mad can you fucking be that this guy is trying to get jobs and security for everybody in his town? There's also a lot of, you know, uh, character growth throughout the the time, you know, from where you are just now to to where it is now. There's definitely some loss along the way. and, And, you know, the character definitely grows along the way. Yeah, it, they've they've done a very good job, I think, of of learning the lessons of of previous series that they've worked on. Uh, that's why I think you've seen the number count down, um, and I think the influence of uh, Warner Brothers themselves, HBO, has something to do with it. Um, but it's it's an alternate take on the character once again that um, I think a lot of people should give the chance to to and check it out in earnest because. Um, we deserve as a collective, you know, dorkdom, we deserve to have a, a Superman that actually is hopeful and caring and wants to help people do better for themselves and not just act as if he's above everything and alienated from all of humanity. That is not who Superman is supposed to be. And 
at the core of this show, they understand that about about Superman and Clark Kent. They, I think, they understand that Clark Kent actually comes before Superman. Um, and I, I am thrilled that you started watching it because yeah, I, I like it a lot. I cannot wait to hear what you think about the the upcoming episodes because Leo and I are like literally the only two people I know besides like my wife that are like, this show is fucking great. We keep saying it on the dorkening and they're like, all right, Brandon and Leo, <laughs> we get it, guys. You like the well, show. I finally I'm run like, out of enough shows after finishing up Peacemaker. I've run out of enough shows. <laughs> where I'm like, all right, let, let's give this a shot and all that. So. I mean, it, you know, it, it, it just goes to show, too, like, I mean, how, how much, like, we, we want to be positive and, and have, like, this outlook where everything's going to be great. Because, I mean, Peacemaker and Superman and Lois are two shows that couldn't be more different from one another. <laughs> but they're uh... But they're both excellent. Both yeah. excellent, for especially for what they set out to do. And, um, you know, I, I, I just, this is, this is a character that's very near and dear to my heart. And it always does me a world of good to see when when different takes are are given for him that don't involve Superman becoming some evil overlord. I I I find that to be very lazy and trying. And this this story in particular, the fact that it makes Superman take pause and and be introspective and say, yeah, you know what? It's good that I have something that keeps me on my toes. It's good that I have a thing that could stop me if I need it to. And that really is the core of the character. Like he knows, he knows that it's good that he has limits. And I don't think that's an easy thing for somebody with as much power as a character like Superman that, you know, to, to say to themselves, um, you know, I think Marvel over the years has made it their bread and butter for a lot of characters kind of like, going past that point and sort of uh, stepping over the line. And that's one of the things that's always made those two companies different in their approaches and why you have some more visceral things occurring in Marvel than in DC. But that's, that's why you go to different companies for, for different approaches. And you can't do the same kind of things with, with Wolverine that you can do with Superman. And that's the fun of both of those characters. You know, I, I, you can have morality plays, but one, one person is somebody who's good and tries to keep their power in check because they know that it would just not be good to go out and just do whatever they wanted, where the other one has all kinds of power that they barely keep restrained. And they also know that they, they not are, it's not just that they're capable of hurting people, that they, they will hurt people. And, uh, you know, that, that's, that's like I said, it's the fun, the fun of all of this, the morality play that can that can play out in different facets. And so for this one, I think uh, I think John Byrne and and Mike Mignola and Carl Kessel, they fucking knocked it out of the park. They they grabbed a six year old in 1988 so hard by his imagination with these few pages that here he is. Decades later, talking about it with two schmucks on a podcast. <laughs> You guys are the schmucks. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I just want to make that clear. <laughs> I, I think it's always oh, clear. When when we get to talk about um, was it Superman the for the man who has everything the Black Mercy story, right? Um, oh. It's going to be interesting because Alan Moore wrote that John Byrne did the art for it, and then this comes after that. 
So I, you know, we, we can save the discussion for when we actually do that one. But um, there's a lot of parallels that you can draw from that. They didn't go in the same direction at all, but it, it's kind of like, all right, I can see where you came from here. So maybe he took a little, dipped his pen in the ink of, uh, you know, uh, the the Alan Alan Moore there. So yeah, uh, no, I, to that one. <laughs> that's going to be a very good conversation. Absolutely, and we won't get into it now because uh, we're going to wrap this up. But um, yeah. Any any notes, any comparisons that you have on that, jot down because I I, de- I definitely have a few feelings on the approaches that were that were used in both of the stories by the different writers. But anyway, <laughs> uh, so yeah, that was that was Superman eighteen gang. Um, you know, Return to Krypton is the name of the the issue. Uh, if if you want to check it out more in depth, I, I do recommend. Uh, tracking down a copy you can find it digitally on comicsology.com um or any other number of places that Uh, comicsology has changed that's true uh you can check that's where i found it by the way so i read it on comicsology you can check it out on the comicsology marketplace on (laughs) amazon.com yeah i it's bundled into kindle unlimited i believe yeah um comicsology.com it, it, it is a, an amazon owned company it has been for several years now uh but they are actually shifting uh everything over to amazon and the kindle marketplace so uh everything your any subscriptions anything like that that you might have through that digital service it's going to be handled all together by amazon on the plus side of things i do believe that that means you can now use amazon gift cards for, you can uh, yeah for purchases on comiXology. Yeah. I do the um, unlimited uh, monthly with them. So it's like $7.99. You can read all yeah. the stuff that they have. So yeah. um, just the stuff that they give you in the unlimited stuff. But yeah, it, it charges through Amazon. Yeah, I do. I do the Pretty same seamless. thing. Yeah. Um, so and you can zoom. Oh, oh I know. It's, it's the best you can zoom in. <laughs> yeah, I actually already had this purchased on comiXology.com. So that's how I reread it. Um, I was like, wait a minute. Do I own this? Oh. Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I spent like a dollar 67 on it. I'm like worth it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and that's, the, that's the beauty of the comiXology unlimited too. You get that slight discount on, on back issues too, because otherwise it would have cost like a buck 99 or something like that. And they well, shave off. This has got to be, I, I don't know what it's worth to, to get this story or anything like that, but early Mike Mignola art. I mean, you're, you're probably looking at at least a $15 back issue at least Yeah, for something that costs 75 cents when it was put on. It, it, yeah. Yeah. That's that's nothing to sneeze at, um, but yeah. So let's uh let's let's leave it at that. You know, if you if you want to check it out, um, you can check out uh, the Comicsology Marketplace for Kindle on Kindle Unlimited, Amazon.com, um, or any other number of places that you might be able to find it online that I'm not going to list here because that shit is legal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we support the comic industry here. Wink, and. Uh, you know, with that, uh, we'll we'll uh, say our our we'll give our valedictions here. So uh, let me let me see here. Let's go with uh, let's go with Coop. Coop, where can people find you? You can find me on Facebook, Justin Cooper. You can find me on Instagram. Uh, I think it's at uh, Booster Booster Gold, and um, let's see, uh, J Booster Gold. And yep. uh, you can find me in the Epic Shells Facebook group and uh, the Epic Tales from the Sewers Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles podcast. And uh, the upcoming uh, Splash Pages, was it Splash Pages Comic Book Club.com? Excellent. Yeah, or you can just go to splashpages.net. I think I have that directing as well. Excellent. 
Uh, if better. not, it will be. <laughs> it will be by the end of this. It's, it's a splash pages <laughs> alternate reality. Uh, yeah, I, I I owned a domain. I thought I forwarded it. If not, I will. He's the Kryptonian. <laughs> Outstanding. And uh, Leo, where can where can people follow you and and all that jazz? Uh, yeah, uh, just Google Leo Pond. You can find me everywhere: Facebook, Twitter, just about everywhere. Uh, but more importantly, I run a little thing called the Dorkening Podcast Network, which there's a ton of people doing a ton of awesome stuff. So uh, go check them out. And uh, yeah, that's me. Excellent. And uh, I am I am Brandon Powers. Uh, you can check me out uh, at Twitter at Brandon po- Brandon's Powers. And on Instagram at this Brandon has powers. I also run the powers combined Facebook group. Uh, it's just a bunch of dorks getting together to share info and memes, have a few laughs. Uh, our number one rule there is don't be a jerk. If you violate that, you will be booted immediately. We are there to help people and shepherd them along, especially if they have questions. And uh, nobody gets that if everyone gets made fun of when they have a question about something that's dorky. Um, other than that, you can check me out on the Wednesday night dorkening podcast at 9 p.m. Eastern Central uh, Eastern Standard Time, rather. Uh, and uh, I'm here every couple of weeks on Comics Paradox with these fine fellows, as well as the bi-weekly podcast that's going to be coming out soon, The Dork Night with Leo and Justin, where we cover all things Batman. Uh, it's a lot of fun, too, so keep your eyes peeled. Awesome that one you guys there thanks everybody have a good one